The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, analyse why Ukraine's bid for EU membership may be more difficult than it first appears, and we ask how Germany's intelligence agency became a liability for Europe. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 6th of February, day 348. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and our Europe editor, James Crisp. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hello, everybody. It's been a yeah, busy, busy weekend. Let's start in Bakhmut. So in the Donbass here, still in the, in the central Donbass area, the town of Bakhmut. Uh, today's British Defence Intelligence report saying Bakhmut is, quote, increasingly isolated, unquote. That's after. So Russia has been making a number of small advances recently in recent in the last sort of uh, three or four weeks. I mean, extremely costly and, and very small, hundreds of metres uh, for each push. But um, but they are um, they are pushing towards Bakhmut. So there's two main roads: the M03, which heads northwest uh, out of Bakhmut towards Slovyansk, and the H32, which heads southwest out of the town. They are the two main roads into the city for uh, for Ukrainian resupply, logistic resupply. They are no they are now thought to both be uh, under direct fire from Russia. So there's indirect fire and direct fire. Indirect fire is like artillery when the the, the, the weapon system firing the, the round can't see the target. It's working on location that's been provided by, by other means. Now, these days, indirect fire can be incredibly precise and accurate, and some, some, weapons can, some missiles can be programmed in the air once they've been launched. But generally speaking, direct fire is much more accurate because you, the firer, can physically see the thing you're firing at. Now, that might be with your rifle. It could be with some heavier weapon systems, um, tanks, so on and so forth. I mean, it can, in extremists, be with artillery as well. You just lower the barrel and fire, fire in a straight line, basically. Um, but direct fire is generally taken to be that those weapons that are that are, that are supposed to be used in that in that means. But what what they're saying here is, if those logistic roads, if those roads are the the, the main resupply corridors, if they are under, if they are threatened, likely threatened. The word is they they use likely but likely threatened by direct fire, then that is a, a, a much bigger threat to those, uh, to those routes um, rather than just being covered by, by artillery, if you can imagine it. So if you're trying to dash down those roads with a, with a resupply convoy with, with fuel, water, ammunition, you know, if you've got artillery bursting around you, that's one thing in direct fire. But if you've got direct fire weapons laid onto you and, and trying to hit you directly, then they've got a much greater chance of success. So that is, that is a very, very serious situation there. Now, uh, earlier in the week, so the Wagner paramilitary group, the uh, the mercenary group, is still is still active. We think they took another route, which goes uh, uh, due north, straight out of Bakhmut, towards the town of Siversk, which is about thirty k's away. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so I mean, they are moving forward and slowly, if not encircling Bakhmut, or if, sorry, if not moving through the city of Bakhmut itself, then they are sort of strangling it by uh, by trying to encircle it and cut off the resupply. Now, UK defence intelligence, British defence intelligence today says that, quote, while multiple alternative cross-country supply routes remain available to Ukrainian forces, Bakhmut is increasingly isolated, as I say. Uh, President Zelensky has referred to it as Fortress Bakhmut. He said it would never be surrendered um, and said that more uh, Ukrainian troops are being um, committed into that area. I'll talk in a little while after the after the quick updates about what we think is happening at this stage of the war and in this this geographic region. But just one more one more update before I take a little pause is um, there's confusion today over the position of Ukrainian Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov. There was um, so a Kiev official yesterday said that he was going to be moved um, out of the uh, Defence Ministry to become Minister of Strategic Industries uh, in, and that he would be replaced by the Chief of Ukrainian Military Intelligence, Kirill Budinov. Um, who's who's well uh, considered to be a very a very capable guy? He's done uh, done good stuff over at the uh, intelligence department, um, but yeah, quite what's happened to Mr. Rezikov? Not sure because that same Kiev official said today that no personnel changes are going to be announced at the defence ministry this week. The context here, of course, is President Zelensky has been um, trying to he's been on been on a big anti-corruption. Uh, purge of his government and senior offices. He's trying to trying to sort of clean it all out, partly because it's the right thing to do, partly because that's what that, that's, that's the election platform he stood on all those months ago before the war started. In this phase of the war, anyway. So he's always been um, keen to try and try and root out corruption. This is the, this is a, uh, the next wave in this, but it also obviously comes amid. Um, if not concern, then certainly questions being asked, particularly from the Republican side of um, U.S. politics about um, the talk of we can't send a blank check to Ukraine and so forth. I mean, I don't think there is a blank check. I think there are sufficient or there are oversights. Um, we can have a discussion about whether they're sufficient or not. But this whole idea that, that Zelensky, President Zelensky has to show that he is a responsible um, steward for these billions of dollars that are being spent and gifted uh, on and to his country. So, yeah, this 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 purge is uh, within that context. Now, Mr. Reznikov, the the defence minister, we think still he's not been publicly implicated in any scandals, but one of his deputies and several other other officials in the defence ministry have. There's a, um, a defence contract that's been cited that the uh, for supply of food to to the armed forces of Ukraine was uh, was signed sort of twice or three times the um, the value that it should have been. So, you know, there seems to be seems to be something going on there. Um, and quite where Mr. Reznikov is, we do not know. He said yesterday that he had not been informed of any move. So there seems to be some sort of bit of topsy turvy stuff there. Um, I mean, if Mr. Reznikov has been moved to another to Minister of Strategic Industries, I mean that that's not that's not an absolute purge. It's not suggesting that he was he was doing anything wrong. I don't think. I think he's carrying the can for those people in his ministry um, that have been um, found wanting. That's a, that would be my interpretation if this is what's happening. But like I say, it is it is a very fluid environment, um, and so we're not quite sure. There's a lot of other little bits and pieces, um, and by little I don't mean to diminish their significance because they are they are they are um, yeah very serious. But there's lots of other other stuff um, over the weekend, and then I'd like to talk if I could about what what we think is happening in the Donbass right now. But I will just take a little pause there. Thanks very much, Dom Francis. Can I go to you fairly briefly for some of the major diplomatic updates, and then we'll bring in James. 
Well, thank you, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. I want to start with the big story for us at The Telegraph since our last episode, which is that we are able to name the alleged Russian spy at the centre of what is now the biggest European intelligence scandal in decades. This is, of course, the double agent in Germany's foreign intelligence service, the BND. We can reveal that his name is Carsten Linker. He's a 52-year-old father of two and is a volunteer football coach. Now, he's also under to have been a rising star of the BND where he oversaw units tasked with spying on foreign communications and internal security. He is suspected of passing on top secret intelligence to Moscow, some of which is believed to have involved and been related to Ukraine. He was, of course, arrested for treason last December. And before his arrest, he was thought to be one of the top rising officials in the BND and was already privy to highly sensitive intelligence that was being shared amongst Western spies. There was also a courier involved, which we've talked about in the past. We're not able to name him, but he's understood to be a charismatic businessman already living a jet set lifestyle at the age of 31. He was born in Russia before moving to Germany as a child and then uh, joined the German armed forces before starting a business career. It's believed that the two were meeting at some kind of barbecue and that this was where they were being uh, meeting up in order to exchange uh, intelligence and that that would then be leaked via this uh, this courier uh, straight to Moscow, who had already perhaps recruited him earlier. That's one of the theories and that he was attending this barbecue in order to establish contact with Mr. Linker. So a really, really significant uh, development, this and one that has caused big comment over the course of the week. We broke it on Friday night. So, uh, and I'm, I'm well aware that James listening to this will have a lot of thoughts because he was writing on it over the weekend. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for that, Francis. Well, let's go straight to our Europe editor, James Crisp. James, you wrote a fascinating sort of analysis of this for The Telegraph called How Germany's Intelligence Agency Became a Liability for Europe. So would you just take some of the news that Francis has relayed and put everything he said in context for us? It really is sort of a fascinating story. Basically, back, I mean, we have to go back into uh, the early 1990s, just after the reunification of Germany. And then there was kind of a decision really to to hollow out uh, the German intelligence services. You know, there were massive staff cuts. That only picked up pace after the Cold War. One of the men who's blamed for basically not doing anything to remedy this and actually overseeing some of these cuts is none other than Gerhard Schroeder, a friend of a podcast, I'd imagine, the former German chancellor who uh, has basically become a sort of a Putin propagandist in chief, taking the, the sort of a Gazprom ruble to pay for his numerous, numerous divorce, so many divorces. In fact, he's known as the Lord of the Rings in Germany, which always makes me chuckle. Anyway, Mr. Schroeder didn't do anything to sort out this issue. I mean, to put it into context, they didn't even have a counter-espionage unit until 2017. It had been closed down. So really, you had a situation where where Germany was almost a, a sort of a, a playground for foreign intelligence, Russian foreign foreign. Not only, of course, I mean, the Americans turned out to be uh, secretly bugging Angela Merkel's phone, if you remember. The first of the BND, the German intelligence service, found out about it was after the Snowden leaks. So we really got a, an institution here which hasn't really been given the tools to do its job. 
sort of further hampered by a cultural apathy towards espionage in Germany. Totally understandable, of course, but, you know, after the experience of the Gestapo and especially the Stasi in East Germany, there really is a, 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 a different focus and emphasis on the importance of privacy and a, 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 and a deep sort of distrust of state agencies snooping, which I think has also sort of contributed to this, this lack of investment, basically, this lack of funding. But, you know, these kind of double agents are not something new in the senior ranks of the BND. In fact, back in the 1950s, it turned out the very first boss of the BND uh, was a double agent for the KGB. So there's a sort of a long and inglorious history here, which contrasts very poorly with, I don't know, Sweden, the Nordic nations, where despite the end of the Cold War, they sort of kept up a a first-class spy service. Now, as you'd imagine... You know, this scandal has led to a lot of calls in Germany from political parties saying, you know, time to sort this out, not fit for purpose. Needs an overhaul, a sort of a a, a revolution, really, uh, in the same way as kind of has been promised for the sort of chronically under-equipped German army. But, uh, you know, you can make those promises, but as kind of is the story, really, of, of Germany and Ukraine, those decisions are being made little bit too late. I mean, that might not be entirely fair, but it's certainly the impression that's being given. Well, thank you very much for that, James. That was fascinating. Can we just stay stay on the EU, zoom out a little bit more? The EU is planning for Vladimir Zelensky, that's the Ukrainian president, to attend a summit of its leaders this week. This came from the Financial Times today. But you've written, again, a very interesting analysis for the, for the Telegraph on just how tricky and difficult it will be for Ukraine to join the EU. Could you talk us through, I mean, this is a huge subject, so please take your time, but could you talk us through exactly why? I mean, this this is feels hugely important because, of course, this is something diplomatically the Ukrainian side want dearly. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to say straight off the bat is that the EU does want Ukraine to join the EU. Just not now, and certainly not in the two years that the Ukrainians are are suggesting might be possible. Uh, A lot of reasons for that. Some are political, some are quite tedious and legalistic, and and some are both, to be honest. I think the most important thing for everyone to understand, and I say this as a sort of a a guy who covered the Brexit negotiations in depth from Brussels, so take my word on this, it is even harder to join the EU than it is to leave. In fact, it is much harder to join. You know, you're talking about a long, painful, sometimes extremely frustrating process of gradually absorbing EU law, taking it on to, you know, this covers everything from human rights legislation to central banking to, you know, uh, pig health. I mean, pretty much anything you can imagine, there will be a regulation for it. And you need to sort of get this onto your national books so that when you do join, you're ready you're part of a single market and, you know, you're, you're not distorting the single market. Now, even when you were talking about countries like, you know, Finland, Sweden, I think, you know, they joined in 1995. These are, you know, rich Western European nations, which I don't think anyone would, you know, they more or less. But there's no sort of big problem with them joining the EU. Even then, I mean, it took three to five years. 
So you take a look at some of the uh, Eastern, Central and Eastern European countries that joined in what's, what's called the Big Bang, the 10 countries in, in 2003. And most of them, we're talking, we were talking 10 years of negotiations, 10 years of tests, 10 years of you know, jumping through all of these hoops before it then gets put to a final vote. And even then, you know, all sorts of stuff can go wrong. It can be vetoed by, you have to be unanimously supported by every member state. I mean, at the moment, Albania, Albania has been waiting to join for coming up on, I think, 10 years. And I think it first said it wanted to join 17 years ago. And the only reason it isn't joining at the moment is because Bulgaria is having a sort of a bizarre, arcane argument about the historical origins of its language with North Macedonia. And because they want Bulgaria, North Macedonia and Albania to join at the same time, everything's ground to a halt. That sort of thing sounds weird. But it's not that unusual. And these are countries which aren't in the middle of a war, you know, aren't in the middle of a fight for their very survival. You know, anyone who knows any, you know, followed anything to do with Brexit will know how important borders are. You know, you need to know where the single market ends so that you can impose the checks to make sure that whatever comes in has adheres to EU standards, right? EU regulation. No one knows where the borders in Ukraine are going to be. I mean, they're moving all the time. So <laughs> that's, that is a very basic problem. The next problem is Ukraine is not a small country. It is a big country, right? It would, when it joins, it will also be the poorest country in the EU by quite a distance. Even That was the case even before uh, the war. So you've also got to factor in the money for reconstruction, EU funding, there's something called cohesion funds. This is basically money from the EU budget, which is designed to try and raise living standards across the block to roughly the same level or to at least help get towards that kind of level. Uh, you'll see them still uh, uh, in the UK when you walk around. Occasionally, you'll see a little EU flag left over from when we're, we're members in, in certain areas where they weren't getting enough funding. So it's, it's, not, just, it's not just in poorer countries. It's, it's in the Western countries as well. But this, for Ukraine, will be huge, right? It'll be a huge amount. Ukraine is basically 55%, or it was, farmland, right? It, it, it's, it's one of the world's breadbaskets. One of the biggest chunks of the EU budget is the common agricultural policy. It's sort of this huge, massively sort of totemic and symbolically important network of subsidies, which are basically... I'm simplifying, but are basically dished out on how many acres you have. Well, Ukrainian farmers have a lot of acres. So that is a massive chunk of, you know, something which has been part of the EU since the very beginning and is, you know, a may, you know, French farmers are going to be worried about that, Spanish farmers, all of Europe's farmers, basically. Uh, so, you know, that is going to have to be reformed. They're going to have to come up with some way of making sure that you don't have a sudden huge drain on the budget or you're going to have to increase the budget or you're going to have to introduce kind of a phase in on cap funding. Any other all but all of this stuff requires negotiation on some of the most difficult areas to reach agreement in EU policymaking. Historically, I think the last time they tried to reform and this is pretty basic reforms. Last time they tried to reform the agricultural subsidies, it took three years. So that's a problem. 
Ben, you've got all this money coming from a budget going towards Ukraine. Now, that is going to change things for some member states. And those member states will have a veto on Ukraine joining. So the Czech Republic and Portugal are currently net recipients of EU funding. That means they pay their membership fees, but they get more money back. If Ukraine joins or when Ukraine joins, Portugal and the Czech Republic will become net contributors to the budget, which means they pay in more to the EU than they get back out. I mean, that is a shift. You know, that is a big change. And some countries, you know, will be proud to be net contributors. You know, Ireland was very pleased to be a net contributor. They saw that as, 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 as a good and right thing to be. But, you know, it's another concern, another potential headache. Then there's the shift of a balance of power. Now, this is a real sort of concern for countries like Germany. The EU's voting system is based on population. Ukraine's a big country. It's a populous country. So it's so populous that if it was to team up with something like Poland, a country like Poland, it might be able to swing some of the decisions its way. So you've got a situation here where the balance of power could shift if, you know, people were canny in Kiev and Warsaw could start to shift away from the traditional axis or engine of France and Germany towards the Central and Eastern European powers. That'd be a massive change. Now, you know, again, there's discussion about whether there should be treaty change. Germany wants treaty change to, to sort of basically make it less possible for individual countries to veto various foreign policy decisions and to try and kind of prevent this shift of balance of power. But treaty change is massively controversial. I mean, Ben, I, you know, years and years and years of talking. Even men, you fast track Ukraine, you've got six Western Balkan countries who've been kicking their heels waiting to join, especially Albania, uh, Montenegro, you know, Kosovo and Serbia, okay, they're a bit further off. But these countries, you know, they will quite rightly say, you know, what about us? We've done everything. We've followed the rules. How come Ukraine gets to jump the queue? So, and then obviously Georgia and Moldova, after Ukraine applied to join, they also applied to join. So, you know, they've got to sort of balance that. I mean, you know, there is always the possibility that Hungary could just veto the application because they've had this long running disagreement with Ukraine over their language rules, which they think discriminates against the Hungarian minority in Ukraine. So there's a huge amount of obstacles, difficult, complicated obstacles. And, you know, the EU isn't the type of organisation, just to take it back to Brexit, which rips up its rule book without very, very, very good reason. And right now, this would require it to rip up a lot of its rule book. And you could sort of there's an anxiety among EU capitals not to sort of get Ukraine's hopes up too high, but they'll be able to basically be uh, be sort of welcomed in. I mean, look, there's no way Ukraine can join while the war continues. There's just no I can't see that happening. But anyway, so a lot of obstacles, but biggest obstacle remains uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, illegal war. Well, thank you so much for that, James. I think you really talked us through some of the some of the big issues there. That was really helpful. Can I just ask quickly? I mean, you, you talked about how difficult it was even for sort of rich nations like Sweden and Finland to join, and even for them, it took it took years. And you said, you know, and they they're not even at war. You know, they're they're at peace. 
is there any sense that you get from EU capitals or diplomats that they do regard Ukraine as a, as a special case? And in, if that's so, does that mean the, the, these accession rules could be changed at all? I mean, I, I think you'll say no, not really. But I'm just curious to see if you've picked up on any, any, any sense that they may think of Ukraine differently because of the fact it's at war. Well, they do. They do think of Ukraine differently. I mean, they do think of Ukraine differently. You know, if you go back to 2014, before 2014, sorry, you know, the Maidan protests, you know, that was a clear sort of signal that Ukraine was kind of turning to the West and to to Europe and to the EU, right? I mean, it was quite an unusual thing at the time to see people marching in the streets with EU flags. It was quite an impressive moment. And I think that there is a sort of a belief of that kind of, for want of a better way of describing it, has to be rewarded. Look, the Commission gave its opinion on whether or not Ukraine could be a candidate country, which is one of the steps to joining. It gave that in record time. Normally that takes a long time. And they got it fast, right, as a sort of a signal, you know, to show that there is this path towards eventual membership. But, you know, the worst thing which can happen is the Ukrainians end up feeling betrayed. And that is... That is, the, that, is the, that is the feeling that I've got from, uh, from talking that that is they don't want this fake expectation. And, you know, they pre- look, we were talking earlier about the defence minister having to be moved on for corruption reasons. You know, that the timing of all of those, about that shuffle was quite interesting because corruption is a major issue, right, in Ukraine and the EU demands major reforms, especially in the fight against corruption, which is something Bulgaria still has to report on and Romania still has to report on. Both of them joined the EU, but they joined the EU under special, with a special mechanism where they have to report on corruption. So the timing of Zelensky sort of sacking or shuffling around these ministers just before um, the EU presidents were in Kiev last week, you know, I think was designed to send a very clear message that despite the fact we're at war, we're still going through all of the reforms insofar as we can. You know, we are we are doing our homework. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I think it's... I mean, one of the problems is that, you know, every time you predict one of these things with the EU, and at the last sort of minute, when it looks like there's absolutely no way out or, or no sort of solution to a problem, there's a late-night summit and they come up with some some sort of solution. I don't think we'll get to it on, uh, get to it at that stage. But I, th- I think basically the war has to end. And then once the war ends, uh, you know, it'll be a long journey towards EU membership. You know, other sort of carrots that they can offer. I mean, you know, one thing that is worth sort of mentioning is that there was an association agreement between EU and Ukraine, which was signed before the war. And that means that Ukraine already has 70% of the EU's single market rules um but you know that association agreement which came with visa free travel and stuff like that was originally designed uh you know as an alternative to eu membership so i think there'll be ways of making ukraine feel welcome in europe without them actually legally joining which is perhaps why zelensky is speaking at uh the summit this week thank you very much james do you have time just to take a quick question from dom or not no worries if not Yes, yes, sure, I do. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, thank you, uh, James. Lovely to to hear you again. And my question is: Are you detecting anybody around Brussels, around the EU, 
more broadly who are trying to use the the war to further the, any EU defence aspirations, this idea of either a Euro, ar, Euro army or a bolstered sort of foreign service or, or what have you. Anybody trying to leverage leverage off the... Off yeah, the I mean, I don't think that's something which is, is sort of particularly new. I mean, it certainly happened at the time and before then it was being... Uh, so, look, EU army, you know, it's been talked about for a long time. I can't see it sort of happening in our lifetime, basically. But what I can see is, uh, I think the problem is that basically you saw with the leaving leaving Afghanistan, the retreat from Afghanistan, that was immediately seized upon as an argument for a greater pooling of EU defence funding and research funding. Likewise, the war in Ukraine has also been used by people within the EU, by Emmanuel Macron, as an argument for greater what they call strategic autonomy. You know, the idea that you shouldn't be so reliant on the U.S. Uh, for your defense, that you bolster your defense funding and that if preferably you buy uh, European to do that. I mean, one of the fears, if you like, is in Europe is that what happens if Donald Trump wins the next U.S. election? You know, you remember how he was you know, not exactly a friend of NATO. And that, you know, the idea that that would happen when you have Russia and China in this very sort of belligerent mode is really concentrating minds in Europe. And I don't, you know, and this isn't, you know, to build a European army, but this is about finding ways to make it easier for EU countries to increase their defence spending. I mean, one of the ideas that's been kicked about is based on the coronavirus response. In order to sort of get this huge war chest to reboot the EU's economy, for the first time, member states borrowed huge amounts of money against the EU budget. Now, the EU budget is huge, right? It is massive. Uh, I mean, it's hundreds of billions. I, I forget how much it is off the top of my head, but it is. Google it and you will be you know, astonished by how large it is. And of course, it has a triple A credit rating. So that means that a country, a poorer country, can borrow against that get the money cheaper because it's against the budget rather and keep the debt off its own national budget sheet. So that's sort of being explored, whether they could do something similar in, in defence and defence spending. Yeah, so I think, you know, whenever there's a crisis, they always say in Brussels, you know, a crisis is an opportunity for Europe, basically. Their answer to any crisis is more Europe. And when you're the EU, you see Russia on one side, China on the other, and the US... You know, there's basically since it was set up in the in the fifties, the idea was as a way of kind of preventing Europe from being squashed by uh, the superpowers. You know, banding together for for protection, basically. Thank you, James and Dom. Uh, Francis Sternley, you've been listening to all of that. Uh, what would you like to add? Thanks. Well, I echo James's sentiments on this. I don't believe that the bureaucracy of the European Union will want to process fast track Ukraine to becoming a member in the short term for all of the reasons that James has cited. There is, of course, within the EU, a, a strain of thinking that its strongest asset, as it were, is that it takes time to do things. It delays and it thinks things through, it rationalises things. And as a consequence, it believes that it reaches the right conclusion, although, of course, it could take many, many years to get there. That is 
what some people believe is its greatest strength. But for others, they would argue that perhaps that's also its greatest weakness, that in times of crisis, as we've seen in recent months, they are slow to react, slow to respond quite often. And one has to ask whether if the European Union had, and the European Commission specifically, had been in charge of Europe's defence protocols, as many believe it should be, we were talking about the EU army there, uh, that whether Ukraine would still be in the strong position that it is, that it was actually countries being able to act independently, of course, the Czech Republic offering tanks, Britain offering considerable military support that enabled Kiev to hold on in those valuable opening days of the war that would not have been possible if all of the defence infrastructure and architecture of Europe was controlled from the centre. So we're getting here into conversations at the very heart of what the EU is and what it should be. And I, I do fear, as James says, that there is going to be considerable tension uh, within Ukraine as this goes on about exactly what the EU has promised it and whether it will be able to deliver it in a time frame that is actually helpful for Ukraine? And will there be a point where it will actually be an impediment that people will be able to point and say, well, hang on, I thought it was meant to be joining the EU. They're delaying, they're not doing it, it's going to take years. And that will play actually into the Russian narratives that the West has betrayed them, etc. I'm not saying that is going to happen. I'm just saying it's, it's a possibility. So I do share some of those anxieties that James was just talking about. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Dom, I know you had quite a few updates left for us. Do you want to take, take us through them? Yeah, thanks. So uh, whizzing through, and like I say, I don't mean to diminish the, the impact or the import of any one of them, but there's quite a few bits over the weekend, so just, just going to rattle through them. Um, Canadian Leopard 2 tanks have arrived in Poland. No date yet for training or when they will be moved uh, further on. I don't think they'll be moved piecemeal. I think uh, Ukraine are going to wait until they, they have trained not just on tanks, but but infantry and armor. Uh, sorry, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, armor, and other things to have that have a, an armored brigade at least, if not more, division perhaps before we start seeing them go into Ukraine. Uh, also, over the weekend, uh, Ukrainian troops started arriving in the UK to train on the AS90, 155 millimeter self-propelled uh, howitzers, uh, quite old AS90 artillery system of the 90s, but still still capable. And uh, Britain's gifted. I think, I think 36, three batteries worth, AS-90. Um, and images were also released by British MOD of Ukrainian personnel training on Challenger 2 tanks down at the uh, down at Bovi, down at the Bovington um, driver training area down there. Um, separately, uh, the, the bodies of the two Britons that were killed trying to help people get out of Ukraine have been recovered in a in a prisoner swap. So this is, uh, according to Kiev officials on Saturday, there was a, a prisoner swap with Russia uh, during which there was also an exchange of, uh, well, certainly of these two bodies. So Chris Parry, who was 28, and his colleague Andrew Bagshaw, 47, who was actually dual UK and New Zealand, um, had dual citizenship there. They were working in Solidar, which is north of Bakhmut, uh, trying to evacuate an elderly woman when their car was hit by an artillery shell. So they were killed some time ago. There was a, a question mark about exactly what had happened to them when the Wagner group said that they'd, they'd discovered documents and what have you, but uh, it was then later confirmed that they had died but their bodies have been returned separately a u.s medic uh, pete reed has been reportedly killed near Bakhmut. his vehicle also hit by a missile no further details known on that yet um, and just the, the final update uh, ukraine has said it stands ready to assist turkey after this morning's uh, double earthquake two very very powerful earthquakes i think 7.7 and 7.8 on the richter scale hit turkey this morning hundreds suspected dead and um, Dmitry Kaleba, 
who's Ukraine's foreign minister, has said, uh, quote, Ukraine stands ready to send a large group of rescue workers to Turkey to assist the crisis response. We're working closely with the Turkish side to coordinate their deployment, unquote. Um, I think that is you know, genuine as, as it is. There will be others trying to say that it's just politics and they're trying to keep uh, keep Turkey on side. I don't think that's the case here because other, other nations, Britain included, have made lots of very public pledges today um, over those earthquakes this morning. And I just want to finally just just very quickly sort of take stock on on where we are. There's been a, a huge uh, debate as to the the cost of the fighting at the moment around Bakhmut and in the Donbass, and um, and whether or not it is it's worth it for either side. You know, Russia is losing thousands of people in you know, for very very small territorial gains, and equally, uh, although we're not able to put a figure on it, haven't really got any accurate figures there. Um, but we think Ukraine is losing a lot of people in the defence of some territory that is not massively important to the war. So what what's happening here? And for help with this, I I advise anyone to have a look at um, Philip O'Brien, who's is the professor of strategic studies at the University of St Andrews. Uh, very very good good chap to to follow on this, and um, he he he's been tweeting widely, and. He was suggesting that actually what's happening in the Donbass at the moment is we're seeing these, uh, I mean, he hasn't used the phrase human waves, but others others have, these sort of human wave tactics of, of Russian troops just charging Ukrainian positions. He's suggesting this is this, this sudden glut of personnel is probably those that were mobilised back in September. They're now really coming online, although they've not had a huge amount of, of training Um you don't need a huge amount if all you're if all you're doing is is being used to sort of uh, as he thinks it to test the the area test the defensives um because any experienced troops are either dead uh, russian troops this is dead exhausted or back in russia training the mobilized personnel so you know there's not many there's not many left um in the fight and hence it's, there's a suggestion that actually russia is probing the line probing ukraine's lines with uh, conscripts and convicts in the case of the Wagner group um, and then where they find a, a breakthrough or, or are able to exploit any kind of success they use what few the few experienced troops they have um, to push them forward uh, to, uh, to try and get through that um, get through that line there we think Wagner have recruited about 50,000 uh, conscripts or are use or certainly that's the size of the Wagner group we think at the moment in these kind of probing probing attacks there's no serious effort at a, at a at a proper reconnaissance they're not they're not working together when they're, they're not using their intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets uh, cleverly they are just they're just sort of pushing against ukraine's positions and seeing um, seeing which bits which bits are weaker um and at the same time russia is not building its forces they're not building up the um the combined arms that they need the tanks working with the infantry and the artillery and the air defense and and all the rest of it they're not doing that they seem to be um as soon as they get a force ready they're just pushing it forward just 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 very poorly trained poorly equipped poorly led men rushing towards the ukrainian positions and it's a bit like the um you know the the classic thing you say with with your kids you know do you want do you want one sweet today or two tomorrow to try and get them to think about the future and think about hold hold down their initial impulse and well I'll, I'll um uh, what's the word delayed gratification but you know the kids always go for one sweet today well that seems to be what Russia's doing they're going for the one sweet today concept as opposed to just sort of stopping 
defending, holding their line, and building up these combined arms uh, that that they that they need. They're just rushing forward when they get they get any grouping of of people ready. So, what does all that mean? It, and this again, Phillips uh, O'Brien's suggestion. He's saying that actually it's it's gritty and it's bloody and it's hugely costly for both sides. But Ukraine needs to try and hold on, maybe cede territory if required in certain in certain areas because they are they are buying themselves time for their combined arms, the tanks that I've just talked about, the artillery that they're being trained on, all the other bits and pieces that are now um, being gifted and flowing into the area, if not into the actual country itself. But Ukraine's holding on for a time when it can build basically build an armoured brigade at least, if not if not a division, a brigade of about 2,000 people, a division probably two or three brigades worth, so five, six, seven, eight thousand, something like that. So it's a it, it's not a race against time, it's who can hold on the longest, really. Russia, these tactics, as costly as they are, they will probably say, well, they're, they're working, they are, they are slowly making ground, as, as we said right at the start of, of today's episode, they are slowly encircling Bakhmut, they are now within range of the uh, of the resupply routes for that for that city. So, although it's coming at extreme cost, Russia will probably say that that's good enough for them. Um, and Ukraine, I think, might might well say, well, it's good enough for them as well. They are holding and they are ceding ground where they have to and where they wish to, because they are trying to buy themselves time to build up this force that we may yet see. Um, later in the spring towards the summer so a, a, a horrendous grinding conflict but it seemingly suits both sides to do that and that's why it, it's possibly um, not going anywhere and we're not seeing any other any other advances uh, across the front Russia I think seem to be happy with the progress they are making in the center so they're not looking to have another go at Kharkiv or Hezon or any, anywhere like that they're just pushing in the center at great cost but it's it's happy it works for them and I think Ukraine will probably say the same Thank you very much for your analysis, uh, Dom. Francis, I know you've got a couple more updates, diplomatic updates for us. Can we go to you next? And then I think, unfortunately, we'll have to start wrapping up and just get your, both of your final thoughts. So, Francis Turnley. Well, thanks, David. I spoke last week, of course, about the military donations from the US, most significantly these ground-launched small-diameter bombs, which will allow Ukraine's military to hit targets at twice the distance of the HIMAR rockets, which have proved so decisive so far. Unsurprisingly, there has been a reaction from within Russia to this. Former Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has said that all of Ukraine will burn after the West pledged to supply Kyiv with more sophisticated weapons. Now, it should be said he's not necessarily speaking for the Kremlin, but I do think that he speaks in a manner that the Kremlin will approve of. And the reason we know that, of course, he conducted this interview with a Kremlin-aligned RBC news outlet. He said that as a consequence of these more sophisticated weapons going there, that it would force Moscow to retaliate. And, you know, we should never be surprised by these kind of incendiary remarks from Moscow, but neither should we just ignore them. They are extraordinary and noteworthy. And I think that it's right to always draw attention to them when they are made. Another country threatened with being burned as a consequence of the actions of another. Just extraordinary. But it hasn't deterred uh, the West. There's been uh, conversations between President Zelensky and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak over the weekend about the further expansion of Ukraine's military capabilities. Norway's Prime Minister on Monday proposed that his country will provide aid to Ukraine of a further 75 
billion Norwegian crowns, which comes to about $7.3 billion in total over a five-year period. And Germany, too, have also said that the Leopard 2 battalions that they committed to sending will be on their way soon after the sufficient commitments have been reached from other European countries to send their promised contingent of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. So that's we've just heard that from a German spokesman literally in the last hour or so. Uh, just a couple of other stories that I wanted to draw attention to in the political diplomatic space. The first is quite an extraordinary, extraordinary one, which has already been vehemently denied by the White House today. And this follows a report that, that Newsweek have, have covered, but also it was in a Swiss-German newspaper originally, that the head of the CIA, William Burns, uh, went to Moscow back in January and offered Putin a fifth of Ukraine's territory to end the war as part of a peace plan drawn up on behalf of President Biden. Quite an extraordinary story, this. We don't have lots more details than that, but this has been very, very strongly denied this morning. The White House have said it's completely false. And uh, indeed, there's been numerous evidence that's been cited from various sources saying that this is simply untrue. Some of them are saying that the timelines don't align and everything. So, uh, but in, anyway, I touch on it just because it is a cause of, of, of conversation this morning and unsurprisingly given the uh, the nature of it the other big story that's causing quite considerable comment this morning is remarks from the former Israeli Prime Minister who served briefly as a mediator at the start of the war um, who has said that he drew a promise from Putin not to kill Zelensky. Uh, this is again coming from an interview uh, that he has made in a five-hour interview that touched on numerous subjects that was published over the weekend. And he describes a conversation that he had with Putin where he asked him outright whether he was planning on killing Zelensky and Putin said that he would not do so. I won't kill Zelensky, supposedly Putin said. Uh, and then um, uh, this gentleman re replied, I have to understand that you're giving me your word that you won't kill Zelensky. And then Putin reiterated, I'm not going to kill Zelensky. He then goes on and says how he came out of the meeting and said that and told Zelensky himself that he wasn't planning, uh, that, that Putin was not planning on killing him. Zelensky apparently asked, are you sure? And uh, this, uh, the Israeli prime minister said, I'm 100% sure he won't kill you. Now, <laughs> of course, we already know that there were plans for the Russian special forces to kill or capture uh, Zelensky. So I don't think we should see these, these pledges made by Putin as being necessarily accurate. But again, quite extraordinary, I would argue, that the nature of the, these conversations were even taking place. You know, the fact that, that it would be possible for a prime minister to ask a, a president of another country to whether they're planning to assassinate a, a democratically elected leader. I mean, in a sense, the medium is the message, right? It's just an extraordinary thing for, for it even to be a possibility that it's happening in the 21st century, I would argue. So um, I, I just wanted to touch on that. And you can understand why there will be considerable comments on that this morning, because it is quite an extraordinary claim, even if it doesn't actually change any of the any of the facts, although perhaps it does speak, given what we do know, the fact that Putin is an unreliable narrator. As, they could, as we could say. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Francis. Francis, can I stay with you? Because I know Dom's got a slightly different final thought for us all. So, Francis, what will you be looking at over the next few days? What springs to mind uh, from your observation of the last few days? Thank you, David. I just wanted to respond to a continuing line I hear from realists with regard to how this war is going to end on this question of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and what that means for the future. So I keep hearing this argument that it is a historical fact, a historical reality, that taking the long view, Ukraine is and will consequently remain 
a part of the wider Russian orbit, however this war ends. So they argue that the idea of a total severance is impossible. This war will end with some kind of relationship, some kind of truce. This is self-evident. As I say, they say it's, it's, it's just a fact, given the close relationship over the past between these two countries. But I just wanted to question this as being an absolute certainty if one is looking at history. To just use one example, one, of course, that will be very familiar to listeners on this podcast across the pond. People said exactly the same thing about the relationship between America and Britain during the American Revolutionary War. They said that the two countries were too closely aligned, that whatever the peace would end with, it would end with some kind of halfway house where both Britain and America were still closely aligned, perhaps in some way that had some political overlap in some way. But if we look, of course, at what really happened, the Patriots, the American revolutionaries, fought and won a war against Britain, a mightier foe, and achieved what many said was absolutely impossible, that being total political independence. The Treaty of Paris in 1783, I believe it was, was a triumph for the Americans. It did take, however, eight years for the larger forces of Britain and its resources, of course, to be defeated and continued and sustained support from France, who gave them weapons and gunpowder, amongst other things. I just mentioned this rather, I, I know this may seem a bit of an odd example to use, given that it was in the 18th century, but it does, I think, fundamentally underline that proximity, cultural overlap shouldn't be a measure for the strength of kinship once the wrongs have been committed. The wrongs that Russia have inflicted on Ukraine since February last year are more than sufficient to lead for a strong desire for severance, not just amongst the political class, but amongst ordinary people too, including in those areas, as we've reported now, which formerly had stronger pro-Russian sentiments. So I just flag this to say beware, beware this idea that this war is inevitably going to end with some kind of closer or, or some kind of relationship between Russia and Ukraine that is closer than some people believe at this point in the war. I don't see that as necessarily being something that is historically accurate if one is looking through, uh, through the long lens of the past. At the end of the day, as they always say with history, nothing, nothing is absolute and nothing is definitely written based on uh, historical precedent. Thank you very much, Francis. That's probably the most pro-American revolution position we've heard on the Telegraph for a long time. So that'll be interesting. Thank you very much, Francis. I know. I can't quite believe what I'm saying, David. <laughs> Comparing Russia with Britain, it's outrageous. I look forward to our emails on that one. Um, Dom Nichols, uh, what's your final thought? Yeah, thanks, David. I just wanted to uh, say, so after months, months of frustration, I've finally made it. I've apparently, I've been told that I'm going to be sanctioned by Russia. I'm on the next list of sanctions, which uh, apparently, I mean, I'm not, I'm not alone here. There's, we've got other friends and colleagues at the Telegraph, Joe Barnes, for example, um, a Brussels correspondent, and and others. Our editor, Chris Evans, he's been sanctioned, and and there are others in the international media landscape. So, uh, yeah, I say I was very disappointed that it's taken this long, but here we go. Got there in the end. And what it means is, as far as I as far as I can tell, that I I can no longer take a holiday in Russia. My Russian bank accounts have all been seized. The four dachas just outside Moscow. I'm not going to be able to repaint. Um, you know, it, it's not really going to have that much effect on me, I can assure you. But I take delight not only for the shits and giggles um, of taking uh, taking it to Russia, but because this means something. And this proves words hurt. And I think 
that's worth reflecting on just for a moment. So the great sage, Mr. A. Schwarzenegger of, of Hollywood, California, said um, when he was when he was Dutch, said, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Well, we now know what what Russia is scared of, what this Russian regime, this kleptocratic regime feel hurts them. All I've got is my voice and the words that I that I put in the paper and on and online. And and it's resulted in me being sanctioned. You know, correct tick that shows them that shows them for what they are. And I urge you to take take strength from this because we get inundated. And I do mean that inundated with fantastic messages here from our lovely listeners, many of whom are say they are very angry and they are frustrated that they feel disempowered and impotent. They, they are geographically separated they can't they feel some people feel they can't help in any way um help the help push back against this disgusting you know display of of humanity and i think what the kremlin have done here is is shown you exactly if you feel that way you've shown you exactly what you can do to contribute so if you want to play a role and you don't you don't have to of course we, we're delighted that you're just listening but if you want to do something else if you want to play a role in the on the um, international information flank of this war, if I could put it that way, then the Kremlin's shown you what what you can do. You use words. You speak to your friends, your family, your colleagues, if if you if you want. Um, you use those words to describe facts, which which they hate. So, if you want to, you can do this. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can do it. You can use your words to explain facts. You can do it with integrity and you can do it with a display of your own humanity. But if you want, you can fight. And I will continue to fight. In December, we spoke to Yuri Tokarski, the Chief Executive Officer of the UHARTS Foundation. UHARTS is a non-profit which works towards improving living conditions for pets across Eastern Europe... Yuri spoke about his organization's work with pets in Ukraine, many thousands of whom had either been abandoned or fled with their owners as the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine prompted a humanitarian crisis. Yuri spoke of the challenges of supporting pets and ended by explaining a little about Uhart's Christmas appeal. Well, we kept in touch and it turns out many listeners ended up donating. So I went back to Yuri to hear what happened over the Christmas period. Yuri, it's really wonderful to see you and hear from you again. Can you just remind our listeners what your charity does, where you operate and the challenges you face? Hi, David. It's also great to uh, be uh, your guest again. Thank you very much for having us over. Uh, we are at the UHARTS Foundation and we implement the Safe Pets of Ukraine initiative, helping uh, pets and uh, animals who are suffering from the consequences of the war in Ukraine. So we are active in the country since the uh, Russian invasion began in February and uh, we've been able to help shelters and pet volunteers with pet food, with uh, supporting the sterilization and uh, supporting vaccination effort and also with medical treatment. How have you and your team found working this winter? We know it's been tough for Ukrainians across the country for all, all sorts of different reasons. Uh, how have you found helping uh, the, the, the animal population? Well, of course, winter brings uh, very different challenges uh, for shelters and for pet volunteers. 
we have uh, noticed that uh, a lot of new animals who landed on the streets uh, because of the war are animals who are used to live in homes. They're, these are pets who lost their families, so they are not really used to, they do not know how to find warm places, how to find shelter on the streets. So one challenge is how to save them from the cold temperatures. And another challenge uh, is to support animal shelters who are struggling with lack of electricity and oftentimes with lack of heating. So we focused our efforts on the one hand to provide more food to volunteers who feed animals on the streets because by offering them more calories, uh, it keeps them warm. And we also purchased uh, electricity generators and mobile heaters and distributed and donated those to uh, several animal shelters to make sure that they keep running their operations also in this wintertime. Yuri, we spoke for the first time back in December ahead of your Christmas sort of charity push. We're partly doing this because we know that, I and mean, you've told us that lots of our listeners contacted you and were very kind with their donations. So what I want to do kind of for them really is to just understand from your side what happened. What numbers did you see coming in and, and where did that go? What did you do with it? Yes, uh, thank you, David. We were running the Christmas campaign uh, together with one of Ukraine's uh, largest retailers. We put together hampers for cats and dogs uh, as Christmas gifts. And we were very much inspired to see a high degree of interest sparkling uh, specifically after the last time we spoke. So all in all, the Christmas campaign brought over 120 hampers. Uh, Those were donated to animals in the shelters, those pets uh, who are being prepared for adoption. So they got a little Christmas gift to cheer up their mood. But we also were very surprised to see uh, a spike in monetary donations too. So uh, we collected over 7,000 euro in monetary donation coming in after our uh, conversation. And this funding was uh, going into procurement of generators, procurement of mobile heaters. And uh, this is also the funds we use to fund our distribution efforts. So we pay for transportation, both of the donations we receive abroad into Ukraine and for transportation within Ukraine. This is the kind of uh, work that uh, the money of uh, the audience has supported and we hope uh, it will also keep supporting us in the future. That's really wonderful to hear. I mean, ju- just just so I can understand and our listeners can understand, you said 7,000 euros. Is that a particularly high amount to receive? Where does that um, stand for you in terms of donations? Compared to uh, our annual or our monthly budget, David, it's, uh, I would say it's roughly 10 to 15% of uh, what we need. But uh, we noticed that it was uh, an unusual um, period of time. So it was very much linked to the Christmas campaign. And that's why I think it's worthwhile to uh, you know, give a special appreciation and special thanks to your listeners who chose to donate to us because they, they heard our conversation and because they understand the winter challenges that the animals in Ukraine are facing. Um, Anzalika and Yuri, you you mentioned you might be able to tell us a little bit about the story of one of the pets um, you were able to help. Can you you take us through that? Yes. We have a couple of good good examples of uh, animals that we we support. I chose to tell a story uh, about our partnership that we have recently uh, concluded with the National Police of Ukraine. They have a canine service, so 
their service dogs are the ones who are helping uh, with very oftentimes with demining and uh, looking for explosive devices in areas that are already reasonably safe but still they were part of the active uh, fighting ground and very often there are explosives who remain undetected. So there is a story of a dog called Bars who uh, uh, originally is from the Lviv region in the west of the country, but he was dispatched on a, let's say, a working trip to help with the mining in the Kyiv area, which was under occupation for a couple of months uh, back uh, when the war was raging there. And uh, one family, when they returned to their apartment uh, in Bucha, which was a town that was particularly affected by the war, they had a piano that the kids used to play. And they noticed that some things around the piano were moved. So they were smart enough to call the police. And uh, the police came with the dog and detected that the piano was actually mined. There was a grenade inside that was left by the retreating Russians. So... Thanks to the dog, then the sappers could come and uh, demine the, the apartment. So this is the kind of work that uh, these service dogs are doing every day. They are saving lives. And we are proud that because we can donate food and other supplies uh, to the canine service, by doing that, we do also a very small part, of course, but by, we feel that it's an important work that we are supporting. Well, that's an astonishing story. Thank you for, for sharing that. What are your plans looking forward to the rest of the year now? We spoke in December about the challenges that um, you face in winter, but looking forward to 2023, what do you think are the challenges? What, what is your organization going to be focusing on? Well, David, what we did very recently is we did a survey of the animal shelters and pet volunteers. We researched on over 500 uh, of them across Ukraine to understand better what their needs precisely would be uh, so that we are prepared for also for the long-term uh, response. We see on the one hand that the amount of uh, animals in, uh, in shelters has increased by over 60% since the beginning of the war. So really this massive movement, this, uh, these millions of people who fled either abroad or within the country, and many of them could not leave, uh, could not take their uh, pets with them and had to leave them behind, those animals are coming to shelters. Very often, uh, because they are not meant to be living on the streets, when they come to shelters, they are already sick. Very often, uh, it's unclear whether or not they were vaccinated. So a lot of effort is required in the area of medical treatment, vaccination, and also spay and neuter operations. Spay and neuter is particularly important because usually this work is done at a local level and these centers are funded by the local governments, which right now have unfortunately limited financial capacity to invest into these. So if we neglect this now, we would uh, face uh, a situation where we would have much larger population of animals to be taken care of. So right now, what we are trying to do more, we are doing this already, but we want to expand more into medical treatment, into vaccinations and into spay and neuter operations. So we are planning to support vaccination centers, veterinarian clinics and spay and neuter centers with supplies and uh, with donations where it's possible. So we are looking also to donors who would be donating medications vaccines, uh, along with the bad food that is always needed. So we will keep the food operation running, but we would add also uh, an operation in a medical treatment in spay and neuter and in vaccinations.
you know, the last question was looking forward to 2023, and but now we're coming up to the anniversary of the start of the full-scale uh, invasion in February. Looking back over your work in the past year, is there a moment or an action that you're particularly sort of proud of that you'd want to highlight for, for our listeners? Well, we are very much near to um, a round figure, let's say, in our aid. We would have distributed uh, 1,000 tons of uh, pet food across uh, the whole country, helping over 150,000 animals to, to be fed. So this is a number that makes us proud uh, in the sense that we are doing a bit to alleviate the, the suffering of uh, the animals, but also making lives of their pet parents a little bit easier. And one particular project that uh, really stuck uh, in my mind and we are particularly proud of, I would say, during the large-scale evacuation in the beginning of the war, right in March, when people were fleeing in large numbers from the east, taking evacuation trains and other transports, we placed our volunteers in railway stations, in all major transportation hubs, and we were distributing animal supplies to those who were traveling with their pets. So we would give some pet food, some water, a bowl, a blanket, some toy, for a dog or for a cat to make sure that the journey is just a little bit better. And it's very, it was very rewarding to see how people reacted to that because we were probably the only ones who cared not only about them, but also about their pets. Well, Yuri, thank you so much for talking to us again. It's really good to see you. And um, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you'd want to mention? Well, thank you, David, for having us over. I think that our message to, to the audience out there is that, unfortunately, as the war continues to go on, we are in it for the long run. And uh, uh, while the shelters in Ukraine, uh, about 70% of their needs were coming from private donations, because of the large exodus of people from Ukraine, because so many people left, this donor base for these shelters has eroded and they depend more and more on initiatives like ours to meet their needs, to keep doing the good work that they are doing. So our message there is that uh, we also, for the long run, would continue uh, to look for donations, uh, either in pet food, either in animal supplies or uh, in financial donations to make sure that we can keep supporting these shelters throughout uh, the next year. And we hope very much that the war will be over soon, but it looks like our job is there for us still for a long time. Well, Yuri, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for speaking to us again. Uh, Anzalika, is there, would you like to add anything or, or come in on anything before we finish? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm really appreciate that you uh, interested to us and to the situation in Ukraine and to the pets. So I think it was a great experience for us and hope it's not uh, the end. And so if we can uh, just uh, give uh, to your audience some information or some stories, we glad uh, with it. So just say us and we, we also agreed with it. Well, thank you very much, Yuri. Thank you, Anselika. Thank you, Anselika, especially for putting us back in touch. It was very interesting to hear all of that. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to dispatches 
our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear and Isabel Bouchard. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.